morning, greetings, and salutations. I've been told I should call y'all history poppers. Do you like that? I don't know. It sounds like you're a delicious baked good, which I'm okay with. I would like to be a delicious baked good. I wonder if you would be a delicious baked good, what would you be? I don't know. Now I need to think about this. Anyway, hi, this is Courtney talking about where history and pop culture come together and intersect. Uh, so we're talking about six today where history has been fictional fictionalized and otherwise uh, in the musical itself for this musical sensation that has taken over the world by storm. And I am so excited to get to talk with you today. We're going to be going through the musical song by song and talking about how each of these songs function to interpret the history for audiences who are not expert in the time period, uh, but who obviously are there enough to enjoy it either for themselves or for their children or significant other or for whomever they are there to go to the show with. So I'm really excited to get started on this and remember... There are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. So if you're interested in hearing more about how six functions in uh, perpetuating pop culture uh, history, stay tuned. Divorced. Beheaded. Die. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. And tonight, we are... Excellent. So actually, the clip you just heard coming back uh, was from the song we're going to be talking about called Ex-Wives. It is the intro song for the musical, and it honestly does a fantastic job of setting up expectations for the audience. So we begin with the rhyme that started it all. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And so we've talked a little bit about this in terms of like the historical understanding of the lives of these different queens and how this as much as it's cute and it's memorable is not accurate uh, and that's one of the things that the show takes on a little bit in different ways than I would as an academic historian but these are artists and they have so much more effective means of being able to kind of get to the heart of the matter in a lot of ways that I could only imagine of if I, unless I decided to go into fiction which I'm hoping to do actually doing more historical fiction eventually but as artists they can tap into things that as an, as an academic I can't and so they directly take on this divorce beheaded died rhyme and it's used throughout the song and it does come up uh, also in the remix at the end as well and how they perform it is amazing and i've talked quite a bit uh with one of my friends who there will be another podcast at the end of the sixth series maybe a 
couple or three, depending on how we break up the conversation, because it ended up understandably being a very long conversation. Honestly, the conversation about six that I had with one of my friends who went with me, my BFF Ryan, who I'm very excited to get introduced to you guys, um, was longer than the musical itself. <laughs> Because it comes in at a tight about 90 minutes or so. Forgive me, I'm drinking my tea. Um, and there's no intermission, so it is kind of like a concert. And uh, yeah, so it goes by just super quick, but they pack a lot into it. And as they're going through, and every single time that divorce, beheaded, died rhyme comes up, it gets more and more weary and just wrote. So it starts off very dramatic as divorced, beheaded, died. And by the end of it, they're like, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And I love that because we have the beginnings of them breaking out from this rhyme that is the whole point of the musical is to show these women as individuals and how they are so much more than just a wife of Henry and spoilers the uh ending of it should they they kind of flip the script and talk about how honestly the main reason that as much as Henry did all of these other things you know the dissolution of the monasteries which Catherine Farrakhan keeps bringing up and I absolutely love uh that he should be more well known for the fact that he had his six wives and that's the reason why people remember him these six amazing women who had an impact as queen of england and so we kind of set up the manifesto in the british sort of sense uh, manifesto is just a plan i guess i don't know I, I love the differences in the term manifesto and how it's taken, at least in how I understand it in American English versus British English. Uh, but this is basically the manifesto is the song Ex-Wives. And so we know you know our names and our fame and our faces. Uh, and I've, I'm done because all this time I've been just one word in a stupid rhyme and history is about to get overthrown. And they do a lot of reclaiming the idea of her story which is also really interesting which has its roots in the women's lib movement honestly that's another thing that i'm realizing the more of these histories that i'm doing and how they are represented in pop culture today has so much to do with second wave feminism of the 60s and 70s and the idea, the name, herstory, which, you know, is when we focus on the women in history, because for the longest time, uh, history was looked at as a very Whiggish sort of progression, and it was influenced by great men, or in very rare cases, great women, like Victoria, or Queen Elizabeth I. And herstory is the idea of the fact that, you know, women have always been alive, at least in terms of human history, and they've always had an impact on history, but it just wasn't written about by the men who were the ones who were writing all of these chronicles about the events, and they were biased against how to portray women and how to even conceive of the different tools and powers available to a woman at the time. And 
So we have this idea of history of reclaiming this power that women had, that this that they were change makers, that they did contribute to society in numerous untold ways. And so it's interesting that we're bringing that back with six and proudly proclaiming it. This is unabashedly a feminist piece and we are reclaiming the idea of herstory in it. And so they continue to go through and you know, welcome to the show to the history mix, which is, is a cute play. Uh, uh, but it's also just super fun. Uh, let's see here. So yeah, every Tudor rose has its thorns. There's a lot of wordplay in this play. Uh, you're gonna hear them live in consort. <laughs> As we've talked about the differences between regnant and regent and consort queens. Uh, let's see here. We've got the divorce beheaded died again. And you're already going to be familiar if you've listened to the other two six podcasts for the introductions for each of the queens, because that's what I used to introduce each of the queens for their historical backgrounds. So my name is Catherine of Aragon, was married 24 years. I'm a paragon of royalty. My loyalty is to the Vatican. So if you try to dump me, you won't try that again. And I love what these little baby snippets do because they take on how these women have been portrayed historically and then throughout the musical throughout each of these women's individual numbers we get to challenge these so we're introduced to the history as it's been told as we probably learned it if you got the chance to learn about any of these women or the reformations or henry the eighth in school then this is probably what you learned you learned that catherine of aragon basically is known for the fact that she was stubborn and she just didn't go quietly into her annulment and that she was obviously very catholic and super into the pope and all that sort of great stuff and so we have those talking points very quickly within each of these introductions and so if you don't look too much into it that's reinforcing the traditional narrative of history as it has been told which is exactly the opposite of what six wants to do and it's a beautiful twist that they have at the end which uh i don't I, i'm sure that both of the the people who i got to go with did see it coming but at the same time it's beautiful when it happens um so then uh and also i love the fact that most of these actually yeah, Anne Boleyn is the only one who actually doesn't actually say her own name she says that she's that Boleyn girl which i think is also a play on the philippa gregory uh movies because, yeah, she's done a few of these historical fiction novels about Anne Boleyn, Mary Boleyn, etc., etc. Pardon me while I drink my tea. And once again, this podcast is not sponsored in any way, shape, or form by anyone but me. <sighs> but if you get the chance, order Harney and Sons tea. It is delicious. And honestly, basically the only tea I drink... <laughs> And while I'm making this podcast, I always do my Tower of London because it is delicious and it is new. No, it's not nutritious, but it is uh, inspired by Elizabethan flavors. Even though England really wasn't big into tea during the Elizabethan period, we have some of these uh, particular flavor profiles coming through. So if you get the chance, order Tower of London. It's a flavored black tea. But anyway, so we have that Bolin girl, and she broke England from the church, and she's sexy, and she lost her head. 
And that's also what we hear of when we think of Anne Boleyn. And once again, as I've talked about a lot, and you'll get to hear continuing on, Anne Boleyn is one of those figures who we really have no idea what her motivations were. She doesn't have a diary, at least as far as we know, that was left behind saying, I did this to break the church up in England. She probably wouldn't have found this accent, but you know it, it's fine. And so I, I, I wanted to go and seduce Henry away from Catherine because I'm just that horrible and I just want to be queen. Yeah, we, we don't have anything like that. And so we don't know what her motivations were. But we have the idea that she has this magnetism that she was able to use. And so we have that idea of Anne Boleyn, which is, once again, perpetuating what is normally taught in schools, that... Henry was just tired of Catherine, and he didn't want to bang her anymore. And so she, Anne Boleyn, stepped in and became that woman for Henry, and she was the other woman. Uh, Jane Seymour, the only one he truly loved, which is also what we hear of as well, and that she had a son, and then she died. Boom. Uh, we have Anna of Cleves, and I like how they used Anna of Cleves, or they say Anna. Ich bin Anna of Cleves. Uh, and that he didn't like her portrait. Well, he did like her portrait, and then he didn't like her in person, and that's all we know. And then Catherine uh, Howard, K. Howard, uh, basically is just this wanton little uh, sex goddess, uh, sex pot. You know, honestly, I'm kind of getting some 60s vibes here for some reason. I'm just thinking K. Howard and go-go boots. And she just is super seductive. And, you know, you need to lock up your husbands, lock up your sons. K. Howard is here and the fun's begun. And then, of course, there's actually really nothing about Catherine Parr, just that she's the last one. Which is also what we learn. We don't learn anything about her and her uh, Protestant uh, inclinations and her strivings in continuing the teachings of the Reformed Church and her writing and her uh, effects on uh, education for women. But so then they end up being ex-wives. And so I think that the first song, the very introduction is a fantastic way of bringing in all of your uh, viewers, all of the audience members, to do a quick introduction as to who these people are and to introduce them in a way that is not as threatening to what we understand them as. Because they're acknowledging that, yeah, these snippets that you get in this introduction, the snippets that do come down in history, do have a ring of truth to them. It may not be the whole truth, which is, you know, the, the history that will be revealed throughout the, the show. And, but we still get the chance to get used to these ideas, these, these caricatures of the women, and then go from there. And so it's a really great way to start everybody off at a similar level. So if you're thinking about this, like, in terms of an assignment, this is a, a good uh, just a summary to give a background for everybody so that everyone at least is starting off from this page. Maybe you have a few people who are a few pages ahead or you had people who came in who were a few pages behind in the reading, but this catches everybody up to at least a similar point or at least a good starting point to jump off of. And X-Wives does that brilliantly. 
Uh, and so then we introduced the idea of what is going on, who had the biggest load of BS to deal with with Henry. And so they decided to have a contest to sing about their woes and to then decide at the end who had the worst and then who gets to be the leader of this girl band. And so then we start off, we do history in a chronological way because it makes a lot of sense. And we jump into Catherine of Aragon. And hers is No Way. And her musical inspiration, and that's actually something that I talk uh, a bit about in the final set of podcasts for this in my discussion with my friend Ryan who went with me, is that each of the queens not only had their historical inspiration, but they have a musical inspiration as well. And one of the main inspirations for Catherine of Aragon is Beyonce. And you can see it. You can hear it. And it's magical. Um, so we have this very strong girl power ballad, basically. Not even really a ballad, but anthem. That's a better word for it, Courtney. Anthem. And no way. And so I also love that as we start off the show, just like we did with ex-wives, we acknowledge the grains of truth in the history that has come down to us as we've received it. And there is a little bit of the challenging of the narrative, but not as much as we get later on. We build over time within the short period of time that we have in the musical to really begin to challenge, especially once we get to Kate Howard. And so I'm really excited to get the chance to talk about hers. But so we start off and the fact that Catherine of Aragon kept her cool. That's what you know. You know that she is calm, cool, and in, in, in control at all times. No matter what Henry does, she is the rock. She is the strong one. She is the one who, you know, as much as he had not one, not two, but three historically confirmed mistresses, as they do talk about later, that she didn't say a word. She did her thing, she had her child, she worked hard to be a good queen of England, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it seems like, Henry wants to get rid of me? Simply because of the fact that I haven't been able to give him a living son? That's bull. And how she, you know, has done nothing wrong. That she has performed Tudor femininity to a T, that she has been humble, she's been loyal, which is a wonderful play on her motto, her historical motto. She's been humble, she's been loyal, she has been, honestly, and actually, yeah, she's been down on her knees, please tell me what you think I've done wrong, that is also a play on the, uh, the legatine court speech, where at what is understood to be or could be easily understood to be the divorce hearings basically where we have the the legatine the uh the pope's legate who is his representative and kind of being able to task to make the decisions on behalf of the pope when he goes to england to say hey yeah um yeah the pope said that this was fine or this is not fine etc etc and so he would hear uh from both sides and this is actually i think the first time in english history hi kitty baby the first time in English history where we have the king and queen summoned to, just like any common person, summoned to give testimony in court. And what's interesting is that they 
aren't necessarily giving it against one another, but in defense of themselves. And this is actually drawn from the historical record. We actually do have chroniclers who write about this, and Shakespeare pulls from it for his Henry VIII play. And it's a beautiful scene. I absolutely love it. And it just shows how masterful Catherine is. And what's interesting is that in this legatine scene where we have both of them giving their testimonies in front of the Pope's legate, that Henry doesn't ever say negative things about Catherine. That he's worried that, you know, according to the Bible, that you shouldn't do this, you should not marry your brother's widow, uh, for then your nakedness will be known to everyone and you're not going to have any kids. And that Catherine has been a wonderful queen and he hopes that the the Pope will find a way to ease his conscience, which, <clears throat> really, Henry, we know you just want a new wife, you, you, that you're done with her and you tr- want to do something new. Uh, but, you know, he has this whole thing where he talks about how he, you know, would love it if the Pope would be able to tell him that, no, Catherine is his lawful wife because she has been so good and so loyal. And in Shakespeare, he uses the line, the queen of earthly queens, because Catherine has done this role that she has been trained for her whole life to a T and she does it well. And then Catherine comes in and talks about how she's a stranger in Henry's lands, that as much as she, you know, has been in England for so many years, and she uh, still is not an English woman, and she has tried so hard to be a good wife, to be a good queen, and she and Henry together have endured so many heartaches with the miscarriages and stillbirths that they've had, and that she asks for the mercy for henry to allow the court to be heard in rome as opposed to in england because she doesn't think and she's right that she's going to get a fair shake in england and so that's the whole thing of the legatine court and so we have this imagery in the show where we have catherine down with the spotlight on her down on her knees begging not quite begging but we get the idea of it waiting for henry to tell her what she has done wrong And there is nothing. She did nothing wrong. And that's actually one of the places where Catherine's power comes from. And so we have, I think, the challenging of the historical narrative in this song is where we actually get to hear it from Catherine's point of view. Not simply because of the fact that she's being stubborn uh, and that she's not acceding to what her husband wants, but the reasons why. And so I think that's beautiful. And also, you know, she didn't want to go to a nunnery. Why would you? Uh, that would have been totally antithetical to what she had been trained to do her whole life. And she would have felt that, no, her, her calling was to be queen. That's what God wanted her to do. And Henry taking that away from her was going against God's will. Which we'll talk about a little bit of God's will in the next analysis. Uh, but... So we have this very triumphant and girl power moment with no way. And at the end of it, Catherine's like, of course I win. That's basically what they do after they finish their songs. They're like, oh yes, I won. Ha ha ha. Okay, well, I'm just going to go into the next thing now. And then we have this interstitial song, which is interesting. The intermezzo uh, between 
Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, which is one of the songs that's not on the soundtrack, where they sing about just how mysterious and unknowable Anne Boleyn is, and that she is this mystery, and that, uh, but then we see her at the back just taking a selfie on her phone, and it's great. Um, now, one of the things that I don't appreciate about how they portray Anne Boleyn throughout is that she is this mindless party girl that, you know, she says, you know, politics, not my thing. And while it's a brilliant performance, I think that that does do a disservice to the memory of Anne Boleyn. And because Anne Boleyn was actually serious. She knew how to have fun too, just like all of these women did. I mean, Catherine knew how to party as well. Anne Boleyn does kind of get a short shake here, whereas all the other queens kind of get this cool revamping almost of their story and Boleyn gets kind of downgraded and whenever there's a moment where we could play up the fact that you know she had Elizabeth just like Catherine had Mary just like Jane had Edward we always come back to yeah my head really loved being on my body and well that's effective and it's funny I think it does a little bit of a disservice but then again I also thinking about it now appreciate it because a lot of times history has looked at Anne Boleyn's legacy as being only her daughter rather than the things that she did herself and it's simply because of the fact that Elizabeth has been just this gargantuan figure in English history. I mean, she has the Elizabethan age named after her, and it's this golden age in history. And so Anne Boleyn is looked at as the progenitor of this, and that Anne Boleyn is her legacy, uh, is her successor. And I think that that does an even worse disservice to Anne Boleyn. So thinking about it and kind of going back, rewinding there, Honestly, I think I kind of appreciate now the fact that the only ones who really talked about their children was Jane. I mean, we have a little bit of a mention of Mary because Catherine actually did, one, get to have Mary for many, many years uh, in her life, whereas Anne Boleyn's motherhood was cut very short, uh, as we talked a little bit about in Anne's history, where Elizabeth wasn't even three yet by the time her mother was executed murdered and so no actually thinking back on that I really appreciate the fact that they don't do a lot of talking about Elizabeth because then it does focus on Anne herself rather than on her child but anyway so her song is Don't Lose Your Head and her musical queen inspiration uh, was Avril Lavigne and so you can kind of see that in the costuming as well as kind of like in the it's not quite punky but it's that poppy punk that we get with Avril Lavigne. And so, grew up in the French court, oui, oui, bonjour, life was a chore. So she set sail, and I like we have establishing the 1522, and so we actually have a date. I think that's the only date that's actually talked about in this show at all. Um, and there's a lot of blowjobs uh, jokes in this song and in this particular performance, which I love, so anytime you should try and get ahead. Yeah, uh... So we've got a lot of sex jokes in this, and it's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> um, but as we're going through, and we see her kind of a growing desperation as we're going through, because, you know, we have this, this course where she comes back with, like, what was I meant to do? And originally it comes off as flippant, like, what was I meant to do? And then it's, 
well, what was I meant to do as we're going through? And so in this way, we do get those little challenges then to the historical narrative of, you know, what was Anne this seducer? What was she actually trying to do? And showing that she, as much as she has agency and she was able to make choices and affect change, she also was high kitty cat at the mercy of the events that were going on around her and at the people who had more power than her. And so we have her, you know, of course, being with Henry, breaking apart the, the church from Rome, etc., etc. Didn't really mean it, but rumors spiral. And so we have these, you know, references to things that Anne actually did in history. Uh, he, uh, say, our only hope was Henry. He got a promotion, caused a commotion, set in motion the C of E. But anyway, so yeah, the rules are so dated. Us two wanted to get X-rated. And so yeah, this, the performance of this is actually super fun. And, but once we get to the part where, and now he's going around like off with her head. In the soundtrack version, we don't get the sheer fear and terror and panic that we get on the stage. And what's really cool is once we get to that point with the off oh, with her head, she actually stops the song and is like, no, 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 he really means it. I think he really means that he's going to cut off my head. And the rest of the person's like, like, well, yeah, seems like he means it. <laughs> and so then there's a lot of uh, jokey references to the fact that later on Anne Boleyn's head was cut off. Uh, and whenever she gets the chance, she throws that back in all of their faces and is like, yeah, of course I win. I, I'm the only one he murdered. And then, of course, Kate Howard's over in the corner going, hmm. But so with the Anne Boleyn song, we have, once again, you know, kind of bringing in how the history has been taught and doing just a little bit of a twist on it to bring the human into it, to bring the person that Anne was into it and bringing in that idea of uncertainty, bringing in that fear, bringing in the the terror at not being able to control your own life and to be at the whims of other people, and especially when those people have the power of death over you. And unlike in Six, there was no reprieve for Anne Boleyn. And so then we end that, and then Anne Boleyn thinks that she's won the show. <laughs> and she goes immediately into singing about wearing yellow to a funeral, which is what she and Henry did at Catherine of Aragon's funeral. Um, but then we have more infighting between Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon. And then Jane Seymour comes in and she's like, well, no, I should get to sing a song too. And one of the things that's interesting about this song, and because, you know, they both are like, well, seriously, you died of natural causes. And Henry loved you, like you said. And so what do you have to really bring to the table? And Jane doesn't bring the misery to the table. She doesn't, with this song, with Heart of Stone, she doesn't really, I think it really attempt to win the misery Olympics that are going on between these three queens at this particular point in time. But... It sets up Jane as, and how it challenges the historical narrative is a lot of times James, James, <laughs> we will talk about James at some point. 
we've talked about, actually I'll talk about a lot about a James, but anyway, so Jane though, in the historical narrative, how she kind of comes across is kind of like Anne Boleyn, but less so in the fact that, you know, we don't really know about her, but a lot of people don't really care to know about Jane. We know enough with the fact that Henry loved her and that she had the son and then she died and then that's it. Boom. And so what this does is it pushes back against the idea that because she was bound to obey and serve and that she uh, really tried to fit into that particular ideal of Tudor womanhood, that she was weak and that her bending like a reed was not from weakness, but from strength and that... Now, I don't like how Henry comes across in this and how, hi, kitty cat. I tried to love you and then you ran away. <clears throat> Actually, that's an apt metaphor. <laughs> that I love him and no matter what, I'm still going to be here. But he lives me high and dry and I am not actually the re- I am not his favorite. Much like Jane and Henry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah actually that that actually kind of works but anyway no so i really appreciated uh how jane's song does try to push back a bit against the idea that she was nothing more than just the sun factory for henry and that she had emotions and she had drives and interests herself as an individual and that she loves him, but even though she knows that he only loves her because her son is there, that, you know, she's okay with that. And that she is going to stand the test. You'll find that she is unshakable. And that she has her heart of stone. And so, yeah, I do really appreciate that. And put my papers away. I feel I do feel like I'm at a conference where, like, I'm, uh, I have my papers and I'm standing in front of my lectern and I'm saying, hello, hello, hello. Please listen to me now. That would be great. Uh... But yeah, so with Jane Seymour, I really appreciated that this show forced me, at least, and I, I hope it did for other people as well, to think more about those quieter women in history who we don't have shaking up the establishment as much and knowing that their contributions were important too, more so than just the fact that she gave birth to a son, and that Jane, in and of herself, was a significant addition to English history. And so I think that that's where we're going to stop for today, and then in the next podcast, we're going to talk about uh, the House of Holbein, and Get Down, and Kate Howard, and then I think we'll do one more cast after that, talking about the, the Kate Parr song, the Kate Parr remix, and then the final song of the show and so even though my cat is being a dramatic little feline in the background i really hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day thank you so much for sharing your time with me i appreciate it so much uh this has been courtney for history pop signing off it's been a pleasure take care Outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been 